The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. You guys are the brave souls. You guys are going on an hour less of sleep. I saw some dads bringing the kids to church this morning. All right, dads are showing that men can come to church, don't need the, their wives. They can bring the kids to church. I'm proud of the men of our church. I'm glad you're here today. We are continuing our series today in the, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, my name is Paul, and I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to serve on our preaching team. And I'm looking forward to sharing with you the things that God has revealed as we've kind of looked at this kind of very well-known passage in Mark chapter 9. I'd encourage you, if you brought a Bible, to open up to Mark 9. We're going to be reading the first 13 verses. It's the part of Mark's gospel known as the Transfiguration account, and we're going to look at that here in a few minutes. But as you're turning there, I just want to share a story. Last summer, Pastor Jeremy, Pastor Aaron, and Pastor Sam from Philippi and I, we were given this really great blessing of being able to go to Yosemite, and we got all the permitting to backpack in Yosemite, and kind of the crescendo uh, of our trip was climbing Half Dome. Has anyone here ever climbed Half Dome? So some of you guys understand what that's like. And so, you know, I'm a mountain guy. I grew up in Montana. I've been around the mountains. I'm pretty comfortable in the mountains. And we got to hike all over the area, climb clouds rest, and do some other stuff. But then the day came for us to climb Half Dome. We decided we wanted to be up there before anybody else was up there. So we got up well before light, and we were kind of whispering around in the, in the base camp. There was other, other uh, uh, people in the camp that weren't with our party, and we were trying to be quiet to respect them, and we have our headlamps on, and we're whispering, and we, we get our provisions for the day ready in our day packs, and we sneak out of the camp, and we're hiking in absolute darkness with headlamps on. And as we start to climb up off that little, uh, little valley floor that we are in, we start to climb up. And then the higher we get, you can begin to see like the horizon is beginning to turn that purplish color when, when the pre-dawn sun is beginning to, to make its presence known. And as we hiked, we'd have these little spots where you could kind of glimmer up at Half Dome, not yet fully lit. And you could sort of see it through the, through the darkness. And, and the higher we climbed, we hiked past deer, and your excitement is growing. And then you get to this point on the trail where you're kind of up above the tree line or where there's, there's less trees. And, and you're met with this first little granite face. It's not Half Dome. It's like this pre-little hike before you get to the base of Half Dome. And there's these, these steps that have been carved out of the granite steps, and you're literally zigzagging your way up this granite face on these little narrow steps, and you get in the, the sense of awe begins to rise up in your heart. By this time, I'm looking behind clouds rest, and you can see the rays of the morning sun beaming across the mountain, but the sun had not yet made herself known. And then we get to the top of this little rise, and just about the time we got to this little rise, it's this little flat spot before the final ascent, and there's this 450 granite face that is half dome, and just about the time we got up there was about the time the sun cracked over the horizon, and there was half on this giant granite rock protruding into the sky, gleaming in the morning sun, and your heart skips a beat. And I'm looking at Half Dome, and I'm looking at these little teeny cables that stretch from the top all the way to the bottom. And I'm trying to decipher what, what that is. And by the time we get down to the base, right before you go up, you realize you're climbing up what looks to be an absolute sheer face. And all they give you are these handhold cables and these little two-by-fours to put your feet on every now and again. And I've been a guy around the mountains my whole life, and I'm comfortable and familiar hiking on the mountains, and my knees begin to knock. And I talk the big game, but I'm with Jeremy and Aaron and Sam, and I want to quit, but I can't quit because they'll never let me live it down. I don't know what to do in this moment. And I'm looking at these, rock, these cables, and I'm just terrified. 
And so we begin to climb up, and literally, even as I think about it, I'm starting to shake. My, my knees are starting to shake. My mouth is, 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 is shivering, not because I'm cold, because I'm terrified. And I got that weird feeling in my gut, and I start to climb up, and it gets steeper and steeper and steeper. And about halfway up, you feel like you're literally like a mountain goat standing on the side of a sheer rock face. You're holding onto the cables. My feet are resting on these little two-by-fours, and I'm telling myself, don't look down. Just look at your feet. Don't look at where you are, because the second you lift your head up, you just get this vertigo because you're just perched on the side of this massive rock. We breathe through it. I, I process through it. I ended up getting to the top. Pretty soon it starts to, it starts to slope, and it tends to get a little bit flat on the top, and the cables stop, and we meandered our way up to the very edge, and you get to the top of Half Dome. If you've ever seen it, it's a giant rock with a nearly 5,000-foot sheer cliff down to the valley floor of the Yosemite Valley. And you walk up to the edge of this five... It's a mile... It's a mile straight down, and you're looking over that, and all these sorts of butterflies and fear. It is an incredible experience. And I'm doing my best to describe it to you this morning with the best language that I can, but I know that my human language is very limited to explain exactly what it's like. As I stood on top of that mountain, I was suddenly aware of my smallness. I was aware of how vulnerable I was, of how finite my nature was. There is this sense of awe that exists mixed with fear and reverence. And no matter how many blogs I read, no matter how many YouTube articles or how-to articles, no matter how many YouTube videos I watched, nothing, no words could have conveyed or or revealed to me what it was like to be there in the moment. Human language falls drastically short of conveying the awe that exists in moments like that. And as we come to our text today, we see the massive limitation of human language. We have John Mark, who's the author of Mark's gospel, working with Peter, who was an eyewitness, the fisherman turned apostle, who was conveying his eyewitness experiences with Jesus. He's working and speaking through Mark as Mark is writing down the eyewitness account. And I can imagine that when Peter the fisherman got to this point of the story, when he's trying to convey in human words what it was like to see King Jesus transfigured on top of a mountain, I can imagine he was just frustrated with how limiting his human words were. But he tries his very best. Today, what we're going to try to do is do our very best with our human limitation to gaze upon the transfigured Christ on top of the mountain. Let's pick up in verse 1 of Mark chapter 9. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say the first, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written 
of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Father, we ask that you, that you would meet us in this place today, God. As we read these words, these are your words. God, these are inspired words. These are living words that you have given to us today that we might encounter Jesus through them. So God, my prayer is as we read these words, as we study this text, God, as we, as we uh, ascend Transfiguration Mount with Peter, James, and John, God, would you give us eyes to see the things we need to see? God, would you give us understanding? God, would you help our, our human limitations not get in the way of us encountering you, King Jesus? God, open our eyes, soften our hearts. God, speak into our lives today that we may worship you. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this account of the transfiguration, my whole life I've read this, this text. And if I'm honest, it's been a little bit perplexing for me because it's something that my human brain can't quite comprehend. Maybe you're like me. It seems bizarre a little bit. It seems strange. It's hard for me to imagine as I read these words what that was actually like for human eyes to, to gaze upon like magnificent divinity like these men were able to see on that day. It, it, it reveals the otherworldliness of Jesus. Nothing in our human experience that you and I have ever experienced comes close. We can't say, oh yeah, uh, the transfiguration, that's like dot, dot, dot. There's nothing else like it. So we have, to, we have to try to comprehend something our brains can't quite comprehend. And we try to put ourselves in the place of Peter, James, and John as they watch the appearance of Jesus be transformed in their very presence. As he became dazzling white. I mean, words fail to convey the brilliance of the pure light that was flowing out of Jesus. And so what I've done as I've read the Bible over the years, if I can just be honest, is I've tended to, to skip over passages like this. Maybe not skip, but read them, but not settle into them. And I've tended to move on because my natural brain just couldn't comprehend the supernatural realities of what's taking place right here in these verses. I like the humanity of Jesus. I get that because I'm human. And so I tend to settle into the texts that talk about the humanity of Jesus, the approachable parts of Jesus, the touchable aspects of Christ, the parts that I can understand. But the divinity of Jesus, his God nature, that's hard for us. And in this passage... We see his godness on full display. Words come up short. <laughs> Jeremy and I were laughing about this this week. It's like, here's Peter, a fisherman, trying to come up with words to define what it's like to see divine Christ. And he's like, it's like, like all the bleach, man. Like if all the bleach was on him, that's how white he was. It's like, okay, Peter, enough. <laughs> Stick to fishing, bro. Uh, <laughs> but there's this divinity of Jesus on full display. And and I think rather than sit with the divine, glorious, mystifying, otherworldliness of Jesus Christ, we, we tend to skip to things that are easier to understand. But can I encourage you this morning to not do that? Together this morning, can we, as a church, can we just turn our eyes to Jesus and ask God by his Spirit to give us understanding of what's taking place here on these pages and what took place 2,000 years ago on top of a mountain in the north of Israel? I mean, there's some questions that I, I've been asking as I've read this text this week. Why did Jesus choose to be transfigured? Why did he do this? And, and why did he choose this time to be transfigured in his ministry, sort of in the middle of his ministry? Why? 
Well, on the one hand, if we think about the context, Jeremy preached last week, Peter had just gotten into some trouble, right? Do you remember when Jesus asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And they were saying, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Elijah. But Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter said, well, you're, you're the Christ. And it's this glorious moment. Peter got it right, but he wasn't seeing clearly because in the very next breath, when Jesus talked about that he must be delivered over to the authorities and he must suffer many things and and be buried and must come back to life, Peter rebuked Jesus. And so Jesus rebuked Peter. Peter's vision of God was far too small. Peter was thinking of Jesus in human terms. He was thinking of Jesus in personal and political and power-grabbing ways. He couldn't comprehend the otherworldliness of of Messiah. He just couldn't. And so when Jesus hears Peter rebuke him for daring to say that he's going to die, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Peter's plans were kind of a a here and now kind of plan. They were real-world, practical plans. And I'm perhaps reading into the text a little bit, but as I was listening to some other people handle this passage over the last couple of weeks, you get the sense that there wasn't awe of God in Peter's plans. There was anger at the occupying Roman forces that had taken over Israel. There was frustration at the corrupt religious establishment. And Peter saw in Jesus this vehicle, this mechanism, this leader who could maybe solve a lot of these worldly problems. He did not see divinity. And so as, as I think about that, I've tried to do some honest personal reflection, and maybe this is something we can begin to reflect with right here and right now. I wonder in which ways are we like Peter? I wonder in which ways, when we look at Jesus, do we, do we see him far too small? I wonder in which ways do we see Jesus less as a divine, saving God-man and more as a, a power grab or, or a, a pawn in a, a scheme to... to, to experience my best life now. They were thinking in earthly terms. And right before this, if if you go after Jesus rebuking Peter, Jesus gave a really hard teaching. Jeremy talked about this last week. In chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, Jesus was teaching to his disciples and a crowd of people that were gathered around him, and he talked about the cost of following him. And Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. And again, going back to what it was like to be these these disciples, they had an idea of what Messiah was going to be. They had this worldly, this small vision. It was about Israel. It was about military conquest. It was about political power. That's how they and religious purity. That's how they saw the Messiah. And yet Jesus is talking in ways that just did not square with what their expectation was. Jesus is telling them, "I'm a Messiah that must suffer." And I'm going to be a suffering Messiah. And they couldn't understand Jesus as a suffering Messiah. But not only was he going to be a suffering Messiah, he invited them to pick up their cross and suffer along with him. That was a hard teaching. That, was a hard, that is not what these men had in mind when they first agreed to follow Jesus Christ. This idea of taking up their own cross. And so then we see six days later, after this hard teaching, Jesus shoulder taps Peter, James, and John, and he takes them on a little field trip up a mountain. Most scholars believe this was Mount Hermon, which is in the north of Israel. It's the biggest mountain in the region. It stretches some 11,000 feet above the Jordan Valley, two miles straight up. It's a gargantuan mountain in that region. And as they're at the top of this mountain, this, this news is fresh on their hearts and mind that they, they've been invited to carry the cross of Christ and to suffer along with him. And here they are. 
the immediate aftermath of what was possibly the most disorienting and discouraging news they could have imagined. But then, as one preacher puts it, they were about to be bombarded with the most stupendous blast of encouragement mortals have ever known. The humanity of Christ was about to be peeled back, and these men were about to see the divine nature of Messiah. And so as we begin to teach through our text today, I want us to kind of do it out of order. I want us to notice what's at the top and what's at the bottom, and then we're going to look lastly at what's in the middle of our text. I sometimes call it top and tail. You could call it bookends or brackets. Look with me. Actually, let's, let's peek back into chapter 8 and look at verse nine or chapter 9, verse 1, real quick. If you go back to verse 38, whoever, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and to, to the apostles or to the disciples. And he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you want to underline or highlight or just pay attention to this picture of Jesus coming in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Verse 9, or verse 1, chapter 9. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. If you want to underline or highlight or pay attention to the phrase, has come with power. And so this picture that we see at the beginning of the passage is that Jesus, the Son of Man, will come in the glory of his Father with holy angels. The kingdom of God will come with power. There's these big, magnificent, powerful things, these attributes of God. And so the first thing I would encourage you to write down is here at the top of our text, we see Jesus is powerful king. And if you want to write, is the powerful king. Jesus is the powerful king. He's a glorious, powerful king. That's the language that we see at the beginning of our passage today. Now, over the years, some people have looked at verse 1, and they've looked at this brief teaching of Jesus, and they've concluded that Jesus is talking about his kingdom in its entirety. Some believe this is speaking of the second coming. Some believe believe this is talking about the, the entirety of the kingdom of Jesus. But if you look at the words that Peter uses in verse 2, it gives us a clue of what the context is here. In verse 2, Peter says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a mountain by themselves. So the fact that he talks about there will be some who will see my kingdom in its power, six days later, he took some of those people present and he took them up to the mountain. It's clear that Jesus here in verse 1 is talking about the transfiguration when he says that, There will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Peter, James, and John are the some men who are standing there. And this is what they're intended to see. They're intended to see, and we're intended to see, that the power and the glory of the kingdom is Jesus Christ. The power and the glory of the kingdom is Jesus Christ. He is powerful king. And so that's what we see first off. Now let's go down to the bottom of our text, if you would. Let's look at verse 11, 12, and 13. The bottom end of the bracket. This is after the transfiguration. They're heading down the mountain, and and the disciples ask Jesus in verse 11, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Again, if you're the highlighting or underlining or circling type, pay attention to the word, he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. At the bottom of our passage, we see Jesus is the suffering servant. How interesting. Do you see the massive chasm in our mind that exists between powerful king and suffering servant? 
And yet bracketing our text today is this depiction of Jesus as powerful king and as suffering servant. I'll make the argument that it's at the cross where we see the encounter of powerful king and suffering servant in the man Jesus. Since Elijah was present with Jesus at the transfiguration, it seems as if this is what the disciples want to talk about. They're asking Elijah questions, which I find super interesting. Because they had just seen Jesus transfigured in their presence. They saw Moses and Elijah descend and speak with Jesus. They heard the audible voice of God, the cloud of of glory envelop the mountain. And yet the thing they want to talk about after all of this is Elijah. That just cracks me up for some reason. And it's interesting to me that, that Jesus doesn't talk about the incredible display of power and glory that just took place. Instead, uh, his disciples are, are asking about Elijah, and Jesus is using this opportunity as he descends the mountain, not to talk about how glorious he is, but Jesus uses the opportunity as he descends the mountain to talk about his suffering. This is just so crazy to me. It's important, I think. And Matthew's account of the transfiguration makes it clear that as Jesus was talking about Elijah, they understood that, he, that they knew John the Baptist was this Elijah who prepared a way for Jesus. And what Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, just as John suffered, the Son of Man will suffer also. And so as we look at the top and the tail of our passage, we see these, these brackets, powerful king and suffering servant. And if you look at the Gospel of Mark, I believe the overarching depiction of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark is similar. That's what we've called our series, Son of God, Suffering Servant, because Mark makes it a point to depict Jesus as both Son of God and Suffering Servant. And and what we've said multiple times through this series, it's interesting that in Mark's Gospel, the people that should get it, the religious folks, the disciples, they should understand that Jesus came to suffer and die. They just can't get it. They just don't get it. And the ones that do get it are the ones that shouldn't. The very end of Mark's gospel is a centurion at the site of Christ's crucifixion when the earth shakes. He says, surely this was the Son of God. So this is the overarching depiction of Jesus in this gospel. He, he isn't the... If, and, if, and if we think, if Jesus isn't the powerful king of awesome glory, well then he's powerless to save. He needs that power to save. He alone has the power to overcome sin and death and to save sinners. No earthly king could do that. Jesus alone is divine. And if Jesus isn't suffering servant, who would take our place as a sinless sacrifice? If Jesus isn't suffering servant, who would take our sin upon himself? Who would suffer and die in our place and give us his righteousness? If not Jesus, who? Jesus suffered in ways beyond words. He suffered in in physical ways. I think the, the prophet Isaiah speaks about this in Isaiah 52. The prophet Isaiah, looking at the crucifixion of Christ, he he prophesies, he says, there were many who were appalled at him, at Jesus. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. The suffering of Jesus on the cross was an emotional suffering. All of his disciples abandoned him. His suffering was a spiritual suffering. God made him sin who had no sin for us. Jesus had the weight of sins of the entire world upon himself. It was the sin of the world that caused Jesus to cry out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He suffered. And as if crucifixion weren't painful enough way to die physically, Jesus' pain was augmented by the reality that he had to bear the sins of the world, your sins and my sins. He had to die and pay our penalty. So the suffering of Jesus, the Messiah, it was foretold of. 
And for some reason, the disciples struggled to make sense of this until, until the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church. But if you go to Isaiah chapter 53, this famous chapter that points us to Jesus, Isaiah kind of gives us this image of what it was that Jesus was going to endure. Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 5, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one who from men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so Jesus was the suffering servant. Isaiah tells us why it was that Jesus suffered. He suffered for our transgressions. He suffered for our healing and to bring us peace. And the very fact that Jesus keeps talking to his disciples about suffering makes it clear that the suffering of Christ was God's plan for the salvation of the world. And if you're a student of the scriptures, we, we have this understanding that the principle uh, of innocent dying for the guilty, it pops up almost immediately in scripture. If you go back to the, the Garden of Eden, chapter 3, Adam and Eve have sinned, and God sacrifices an animal and takes the skins of the animal to cover up the shame of Adam and Eve. We have this picture all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 of there being a blood sacrifice to address the sin of humankind. And then when we get into Leviticus, we have this, the outline of the law. We see the shedding of innocent blood in the Mosaic law. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life, it says in Leviticus 17.11. And so Jesus, the suffering servant, had to suffer because suffering is a part of sacrifice. In John 1.29, we read the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and that's who Jesus was. The suffering of Jesus was part of the payment required for our sins. We are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, the Lamb, without blemish or defect, according to 1 Peter 1.19. And as brutal and as torturous as the cross was, it was through the cross that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, triumphed over Satan, over sin, and over death. We need a Savior of awesome power and a Savior who suffers in our place. And Jesus alone is the one who is both. Only Jesus is both. Awesome power as the powerful king and a willing sacrifice as a suffering servant. And so we need to have that in our mind as we look at the transfiguration. Jesus as powerful king and Jesus as suffering servant and that sandwich between this glorious account of the transfiguration and the immediate aftermath as Jesus was interacting with his disciples. So now look with me again at verses 2 through 10. As we, as we look at this incredible moment, words are going to fail to capture the incredible nature of what's happening here. But what is clear, what is clear in the, the, the telling of the transfiguration is that we are intended to see that Jesus is glorious God. And here's the third point. We're intended to see that Jesus is glorious God. And there are five things that unfold between verses 2 and 10 that, that, that point or undergird this truth that Jesus isn't, he's powerful king, he's suffering servant, but he's glorious God. There are five things, and I'm going to give them to you, then I'll unpack them real quick. We, we see the actual transfiguration, right? This, is, this proves that Jesus is glorious God. We see the presence of Elijah and Moses. We'll unpack that. We see the audible affirmation of the Father affirming Jesus. We have the foretelling of the resurrection, and we have the charge of Jesus to his disciples to tell no one. All five matter in how we understand Jesus as glorious God. First, the transfiguration itself. There are d different accounts in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew of the transfiguration. And they're found uh, 
It, it, there's other details about what's unfolding here found in, in those accounts. Luke tells us that the, they went up to the mountain to pray, uh, that they were heavy with sleep. And so you can imagine after climbing two miles up that the disciples were there praying with Jesus, that they were tired and that they fell asleep on the top of a mountain. And then sometime in the middle of their slumber, whether it was day or night, it doesn't say, they, they were met with this glorious sight. Before their mortal eyes was divine Christ. They had only ever seen the humanity of Christ. And here for a few moments the veil is torn back. And with sleep in their eyes these men scramble awake. And they lift their eyes up and they see divine Christ. Mark says he was radiant. He was intensely white. Luke says he was dazzling white. His face shone like the sun it says in Matthew. And so here's Jesus at the top of Transfiguration Mount. The miracle of the incarnation is paused for a few moments. Jeremy and I talked about that this week. There was a, another preacher who talked about that as well, how, how the miracle with Jesus is that his divinity has been veiled during his incarnation. The miracle isn't that we see his divinity on Transfiguration Mount. The, the, the miracle is that we had not yet seen his divinity as he donned human flesh for the first 30 plus years of his life. And so here, in a moment, we see the true and full nature of Jesus, and it's allowed to peek out, and the miracle of the incarnation is paused for a few moments. And as these men look at Jesus, Jesus was looking back at these men. Kent Hughes puts it this way. I love what he writes. As Jesus was looking back at these three terrified disciples, this is what Jesus saw. His glory in the faces of his awestruck inner ring of disciples. His very image dancing in their wide eyes. Jesus was transfigured, more literally metamorphosed. For a brief moment, the veil of his humanity was lifted and his true essence was allowed to shine through. The glory that was always in the depths of his being rose to the surface for that one time in his earthly life. Or put another way, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. It was a glance back and a look forward into his future glory. I love that. That word metamorpho is where we get the word metamorphosis. And as you read in the New Testament, that word is also used of what happens in the life of believers when we give our life to Christ. How the Lord is transforming us into the image of his Son. And of this encounter on the top of Transfiguration Mount, the Apostle John would later write in his gospel, we have seen his glory. John beheld the glory of Christ. And he writes in, in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we have seen his glory. Glory as to the only Son from the Father. And so we see the transfiguration. Next, we see the presence of Moses and Elijah. Have you ever wondered why Moses and Elijah appeared and was speaking with Jesus on the top of this mountain? And Moses and Elijah were giants of Jewish history. Someone said earlier this week that the little Jewish boys and girls grew up with action figures of Moses and Elijah. They were giants in Jewish history. Moses, at this point, when he appears with Jesus on the top of the mountain, he'd been dead for like 1,400 years. Elijah had been dead for like 900 years. And yet here they are conversing with Jesus. Glorious Jesus. They're having a conversation. Why these two men? Why not Joseph or Jacob? Why not David or Daniel? If you look at the biblical narrative uh, about Moses and the biblical narrative in the Old Testament about Isaiah, we have some clues as to maybe why these two, both Elijah and Moses, had conversations with God on mountaintops in the Scriptures. Moses on Mount Sinai, Elijah on Mount Horeb. Both of them had seen the glory of God on these mountains. Both Moses and uh, Elijah had unique departures from this earth. Elijah was carried to heaven in a chariot of fire. Moses was buried on Mount Nebo overlooking the Holy Land in a grave known only to God. But as we look more deeply, we 
begin to understand why Moses and Elijah were the two that were speaking with Jesus in this moment. Moses was the great lawgiver, and Elijah was the great prophet. One scholar puts it this way. He says, Moses was the founder of Israel's religious economy, and Elijah was the restorer of it. Together, they were the ultimate summary of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, personified in two men. Jesus is not only the divine Son of God, but he is the ultimate fulfillment of the law and all the visions of the prophets. Paul Tripp said it this way. He said, all the hungering prophetic words of the prophets point to this one man, Jesus. And so as Peter and James and John are glimpsing the divinity of Christ in all its radiance, Jesus is being presented as the fulfillment of everything that Revelation is about. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is preeminent. He is first in everything. He surpasses all others. There's none other. There's only him. He is the one and only. Paul, in Colossians chapter 1, and Mitch pointed this out this week in sermon prep, he speaks about the preeminence of Christ. And I imagine Peter, James, and John, trembling, terrified, afraid, hiding, cowering, but peering and looking at the divinity of Christ, the blinding light, Elijah and Moses, they're watching this unfold, and as they look, they're seeing the image of the invisible God, to use Paul's language in Colossians. The firstborn of all creation. As they're looking at him, they're seeing that by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and they're seeing it in their very presence. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. These three terrified mortals are trying to make sense of what their eyes are seeing. Preeminent Christ, transfigured in their presence. And as they gaze upon this marvelous scene, they're hearing a conversation. Perhaps that's how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Perhaps they heard names being dropped in the conversation. Luke tells us that they were speaking about the departure of Jesus, which was about to happen in Jerusalem. And, and here are Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. They're talking about the death, about the cross, and about the resurrection of Jesus. And as Jesus is talking to these two men, these chief representatives of the law and the prophets, I, I'm mindful of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the law and the prophets. Do you remember Matthew chapter 5? Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And if that weren't enough, if the, if the representation of the law and the prophets were pointing to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of all expectation, if the transfiguration, the blinding light wasn't enough, well then a glory cloud envelops a mountain and the audible voice of Father God rings out from heaven. God speaks thundering words from heaven as a cloud overshadows them. This is my beloved son, the Father says. Listen to him. Do you remember the question Jesus asked his disciples six days earlier? He said, who do you say that I am? And they saw, but not clearly. They had it partially right, partially wrong. Well, here the Father is making abundantly clear who Jesus is. The Father is saying, he is my beloved Son. Listen to him. He is the fulfillment of the law and prophets. He is the Word made flesh. Listen to him. Peter and James and John didn't get it at the time. But once the Spirit was poured out upon them, and they were able to look back after the resurrection of Christ, they got it. Peter would later write about this exact encounter in his book, 2 Peter, chapter 1. Listen to what Peter says about this moment 
as he's reflecting back on it, witnessing the transfiguration, hearing the audible voice of God. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. 2 Peter 1, verses 16. For, for, when we received, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and, and the voice was borne to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven. If we were with him on the holy mountain, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter is talking about hearing the audible voice of God, seeing this majesty unfold. But then in verse 19 of, of 2 Peter chapter 1, he says something incredible to me. Uh, this has blown my mind since the first time I read it. He says in verse 19, he says, okay, I, I, heard, I heard the voice of God. I saw Jesus in all of his magnificent divinity, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Do you realize what he's saying there? Peter's saying, I was on top of a mountain, and, and I woke up from a sleep, and I saw Jesus, his humanity peeled back. I saw him in all his glory. I saw Moses and Elijah come down and talk about him. I saw the fulfillment of the law and prophets. I heard the voice of God the Father thunder down from heaven through a cloud, saying, this is my son, listen to him. But he's saying to his audience, but guess what? You have something more fully confirmed than even that. You have the living word, the prophetic word, the word of God. And so when you and I crack open the pages of this book, we are having just as miraculous and incredible and mind-blowing an encounter with the living God when we read these words as Peter, James, and John had on the top of the mountain on that day. Is that not crazy? Listen to him, the Father says. Listen to the words of King Jesus. We have a more fully confirmed word than the audible voice of God. And I'm left to wonder in my own life, Paul, do you have awe of God as you crack open the Holy Scriptures? I got 15 Bibles scattered around my office and in my home. Verses on bumper stickers. I throw verses after Facebook posts because they make sense and they fit thematically. I quote Scripture. Sometimes before staff meeting, I try to come up with a devotional, and if I'm honest, there's times it's 15 minutes before staff meeting, and I'm like, hmm. Read, read, okay, I'll, I'll read that. Just no reverence, no awe that I'm reading the living words of God. God, rebuke me for that. And if the transfiguration itself wasn't enough, here we have a divine confirmation from the Father. This is an exclamation point on the scene. And then we have two more things. As they're heading down the mountain, because every mountaintop experience must come to an end, as they're heading down the mountain, Jesus charges his disciples to tell no one what they've seen. Can you imagine? It's like, what? I want to tell everybody what I've seen. He tells them, don't tell anyone. He makes it clear that he doesn't want people hearing stories of his transfiguration. He wants it kept secret, but why? Well, Jesus wants to make it clear that he is not a powerful politician. He is not a mighty military leader. He is not an earthly king. He is not a pawn to be used in the schemes and plans of humankind. He is the powerful king. He is the glorious God. And his mission is to become the suffering servant that we might be bought back from our sin. And so the reason Jesus tells Peter, James, and John not to speak of his transfiguration is because he does not want to become this popular, populist figure that people will force into becoming a political freedom fighter for their political agenda. His kingdom is not of this earth. Jesus is a powerful king, and he is the glorious God. He did not come to earth to make Israel great again. 
His kingdom is not of this world. And because of that, he then speaks lastly of his resurrection. He charges them to tell no one what they have seen until the Son of Man had been raised from the dead. And so for the second time in Mark's gospel, Jesus speaks of his resurrection. He spoke of it in chapter 8. He'll speak of it again in the coming chapters. He speaks of his pending victory over death, confirming that Jesus is in fact powerful King and glorious God. The resurrection will bear witness to the power of God. God created the universe and has power over it, which means he has power to raise from the dead. It is the power that makes him so worthy of our worship. Only God, through his son Jesus, can reverse the curse of sin. Only he can remove the sting of death. Only he can gain victory over the grave. It is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that God reminds us of his absolute sovereignty over life and over death. And so look with me, if you will. Look with me at Jesus this morning. Jesus is the powerful king of the universe. He is the glorious God of heaven. And he is the suffering servant sent to save sinners. I don't know what's going on in your world today, but you have an invitation right now to turn your eyes to Jesus. If you and I were on that mountain that day, I wonder how we would respond I've been talking about this with my friends and my wife lately. If I'm honest, if I can confess a little bit to my church today, when you've been in church ministry as long as I've been, 20 plus years, very familiar with scripture, been around church people, around sermons, around worship, around church-like things, around Christianity for 20 plus years, familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes I just lose my awe of God, if I'm honest. I punch the time clock when I show up at work. I go through the motions. I have a whole attitude about the reality that we are reading the living words of God. That Christ is alive and he's enthroned today. I think we sometimes, if those of us, and maybe this is you, maybe this isn't you, but maybe this is you. For those of us that have been in the church for a long time, we become so familiar with Jesus that we treat him like an old buddy. Which is, on one hand, it's okay, but we forget that he's powerful king and glorious God. And we forget that the appropriate response in his presence is to fall on our knees in worship and reverent awe. I heard someone say this week that some of us lack holy terror. We think of God as our buddy or our grandpa or our therapist. But our text reminds us today that he is sovereign. He is holy. He commands all of our attention and devotion. He calls us to worship him. We aren't, and if we aren't living in awe of God, we, we tend to replace this awe with other things. We live in awe of other things whatever that may be. And so today I want to invite you in the last few minutes of our, of our message to figuratively ascend Transfiguration Mount, to look up at the transfigured Christ, and we're left to declare that this is glorious God. We are left to be in awe of him. I find it interesting. When I climb a mountain, which I often do, I love to turn around and look at the scene. I love to look at the mountains and the rivers and the valleys and the perspective. Of, I like to look out there at those things. And yet on the top of Transfiguration Mount, they weren't looking out. They were looking at Jesus. Far more glorious, far more beautiful. I'm reminded of the lyrics of the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus, or Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory 
and grace, we are invited to turn our eyes to Jesus this morning. And if we're going to turn our eyes to Jesus, let's take a moment or two to consider what causes us to, what causes us to turn our eyes away from him. As I thought about that, I, I thought of three things that I think cause us to turn our eyes away from Jesus. One is false teaching. Our tickling ears want to hear what we want to hear, and we turn our tickling ears to false teachers who prop up a false gospel and a false Christ, and we turn away and we follow the teachings of men. Another one is pain and suffering, and I don't want to minimize this because I know how brutal pain and suffering can be in the life of the saints. My job as a pastor is to sit with you often in those times of pain and loss. Don't minimize that. As we turn on the evening news and we look at what's happening in Ukraine and Eastern Europe and in the African continent and all over the world, and we just look in our own lives and our own community and our own neighborhoods, there is pain and suffering abounding. And pain and suffering can cause us to take our eyes off Jesus and get lost in hopelessness. All we see is darkness. The third thing that I think causes us to take our eyes off of Jesus are our own worldly ambitions that lead to selfishness. We seek to build our own kingdom and we forget about his. And so as you sit here today, I just want to ask you, and I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know where you may be today. But I want to ask you, what is it in your life that might be tempting for you to take your eyes off of Jesus? Maybe it's the public things that we see unfolding. It's pandemic. It's the Ukraine and Russia war. It's Putin. Maybe it's political tension. Maybe it's the economy. Maybe for you, the thing that causes you to take your eyes off Jesus is fighting for morality, the culture wars, but you're not looking to Jesus. You're just fighting a war of morality. And sometimes there's some really good things that cause us. There's really, we may, when we make good things ultimate things, that's called idolatry. And sometimes we can make good things ultimate things, and it causes us to take our eyes off Jesus. Maybe for you, it's personal stuff. Maybe it's career Finances, business, maybe for you it's relationships in your life that are causing you to take your eyes off Jesus. Maybe for you it's the stress or the reality or the busyness of parenting. Maybe for you it's a false teaching that's tickling your ears that is pulling you away from Jesus. Or maybe it's one of those private things, those things known only to you and God that's causing you to turn away. Personal and habitual sin, busyness, ambition, loneliness, Maybe for you it's fear or spiritual doubt. Maybe it's mental or physical health struggles. What happens is that we begin to turn away from Jesus, and usually it doesn't happen in a minute. It's a slow drift, and we recognize one day that we are living in the weeds, we're living in the sticks, we're living in the valley. We have lost awe of God. We've lost sight of God. We are clawing through life, and we have no idea what we're doing. We lift our heads up from the reality of the mess we've created, and we're like, where am I? How did I get here? Well, today we're invited to lift our eyes and turn them to Jesus. I've done some reflecting in my own personal life, and certainly there are many things that tempt me to take my eyes off of Jesus. But honestly, for me, the thing right now that is so paralyzing for me, paralyzing, is the fear of all the bad that could happen to those I love. It's paralyzing for me. It's an own personal sin struggle of mine. You can pray for your pastor here. In my line of work as a chaplain and as a pastor, I tend to see people's worst days often. I see suicides and overdoses and victimization and divorce and spiritual drift and wayward children and all those sorts of things. And it's so hard for me to see that and not take it and project it onto my own kids and my own family and the people I love the most. And I can lay in bed at night and I can wrench my hands and I can ache in my soul about all that could go wrong. And I can do that for days, weeks, months. And then one day Jesus taps me on the shoulder and he says, Paul, you're not sovereign over those things I am. 
and I've realized I've taken my eyes off of Jesus and I've tried to control my own little world. I'm not sure what's causing you to take your eyes off of Jesus. But would you come with me up to the mountain today? Would you trust the cares and concerns of the world in the hands of a sovereign God? Would you turn your eyes to Jesus? In reverent awe, would you recognize that no matter what is going on in your life, good, bad, or ugly, that Jesus is sovereign over it all? And that he causes all things to work together for your good and for his glory. Would you trust him with whatever it is in your world? Would you turn your eyes to Jesus with me today? We need awe of God in our lives. I went on a little getaway this weekend and I decided to read the book of Revelation in one sitting. Confusing book, but what I saw in the book of Revelation over and over was the victory that is found in Jesus. And John, as he's given this revelation at the very end of the book of Revelation, as he's looking at the new heavens and the new earth, this future hope for all of us that are found in Christ, the new heavens and the new earth, John is giving us a depiction of what he saw, what God let him see. And John writes in Revelation 21, verses 22 through 24, in the city, the new heavens and the new earth, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb, and by its light the nations will walk. We have ups and downs in our life. We have difficult days in our life, but we know how the story ends. Let's turn our eyes to Jesus. Maybe for you, you're like me and the fellows last summer, and it's dark. You're just rousing out of bed. You're saying, I need, I need Jesus. I need awe of God in my life, and you're in the dark right now. You're putting your headlamp on. I'm going to pursue him. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Maybe for you in your life, there's some hope that is dawning on the horizon. The darkness is beginning to break. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Maybe for you, the dawn of the glory of Christ is cresting. And keep your eyes on Jesus. He is powerful king. He is glorious God. He is suffering servant. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful that you give us opportunity to gather as your church, God, and to turn our eyes to you. God, and on one hand, it's so simple. On the other hand, it's so profound. God, remind us today of how small we are, of how finite we are, of how vulnerable we are. Remind us of how big you are, how loving you are, how sovereign you are, how powerful you are. God, would you cause us to turn our eyes to you, God? God, as we look back at this text, as we see the transfiguration on top of this mountain, as we see Peter, James, and John beholding your glory, God, I pray that that we would have an encounter with you, God. I pray that you would give us eyes to see you in all of your glory, King Jesus. And God, as as we ascend the mountain and as we look back at all the things going on in the world, the things that cause us stress and anxiety and fear, that cause us to drift, to take our eyes off of you, God, would you enable us to trust those things to you, to believe that you're sovereign over them, God, and to fix our eyes on you, not to look out there, but to look at you today, here in this moment, God. May we turn our eyes to you, Jesus. You are the powerful king. You are the glorious God. You are the suffering servant who's died in our place that we might have life and have it abundantly. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.